Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Ariana. And you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana. And you'll join us for the ride. Today we have a special episode with two guests. Our first guest was a competitive bodybuilder, physical trainer, and communications instructor at Donna Anna Community College. She, and I'm quoting her, loves to read and typically dislikes films that are adapted from a book because they can never compare to the written word. Wow. Please welcome Sandy Bine. How are you, Sandy? Hey, hi. I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you. (laughs) Now, for our next guest, I got to share a bit of personal history. When I was eight years old, I was walking along the playground one day, thinking to myself, pondering the mysteries of life, and I, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, I knew I wanted to tell stories, so I settled on film director. Uh, I think it's surprising that I even knew what a film director was at the age of eight. Uh, I realize now that I must have learned that from my parents. Uh, my dad would talk about Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and Hitchcock. And this next guest talked about Baz Luhrmann, director of Moulin Rouge, and above all other directors, Quentin Tarantino. Our next guest just dated me. Please welcome my mom, Sarah Gentile. How are you, beautiful? I just dated you. You rarely have an opportunity to use that word. Yeah, I was about to say, I think that's the first time I've heard it in a sentence. Gargantuan. Now there's a word there you, you don't go. hear a lot. Yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that, love. Oh, yeah, I, I got some good comedic timing. Yes. How are you? I am well, thank you. And thank you for the beautiful Mother's Day flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we uh, dive into questions for Mom and Sandy, uh, and this is this is a course you guys can jump in, but Ariana, can we get a review of this episode's film? Oh, this episode's films are Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 by the great Quentin Tarantino, as you mentioned earlier. We count those as one movie in our household, ma'am. Oh, yes. They deserve It's to- one movie. They, they mesh so well together from, you know, beginning to end on both of them that you, it's hard to think of them as two separate films. I'm, pretty, I'm sure he did it just because he didn't want to make one epically long film. It's true. <laughs> um, but, oh, my gosh, I, I've seen these movies a couple of times before, but when I rewatched them this week, they are so much fun, and they are ridiculously well-directed. I mean, the split screens that he does are just really amazing. I mean, it's just about this woman... Seeking revenge in a murderous rampage against a murderous rampager. And I think it's very fun that uh, Uma Thurman, who plays uh, the lead, is, like, she's on the same level as everyone else in terms of, like, murderous rampaging killing machine. But her purpose in the movie, she's always chasing people that really deserve it. And it's fun that you don't really see till the end of the movie that she also kind of deserves it, but you don't really care about that by the end of the film. And it's just, he makes it so much fun to watch, and the story is so um, relatable in some way, <laughs> the mm-hmm. mother aspect and whatnot. And um, I just had so much fun. I could watch these movies over and over and over. A plus. A plus yeah. movie. Awesome. Yay. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, how do you guys feel about that? I feel great. I, f- I feel like that's a just grade. Absolutely. A plus, 100%. Uh, there's, it, you know, what's not to like about this film? It's got everything. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, now I got some questions for Mom and Sandy. Uh, gonna hit you with some hardballs here. 
<laughs> All right. When and where did you first see Kill Bill? Let's start with Sandy. Oh, my gosh. No, you think I should remember these things, but being old, I don't remember dates so well. I don't remember when I saw it, but I saw it in my, I know I saw it in my house. I did not see it on a big screen. And I kind of, I wish I could. I'd like to be able to go back and do that because loving these films so much, I could only imagine how great it would be to see it. So. Uh, it had to have been sometime after it was done with its release out out in you know in in the theaters, and I just probably was flicking through, uh, you know, looking at looking for something to watch. I just honestly don't remember exactly when, but I will say that from the first time I saw them, I have watched them repeatedly over the years. Anytime I just feel like, oh, what should I watch? Oh, I could watch Kill Bill. Or if I'm <laughs> through the TV and I see that it's playing, no matter what part of the movie it's in, whether it's volume one or volume two, I'll sit and watch, if not the rest of it, some of it, because it's, I just love it that much. That's fantastic. Let's go yeah. with Mom next. You want to know when I first saw it? Well. And where? And where? Well, you remember the blockbuster by our house, right, yes, Andrew? Yes, absolutely, very vividly. And for all the people in the future, it was a store where you went and you rented, not DVDs, but video cassettes. And because Andrew, well, part of the reason, I mean, we love film, but Andrew really loves film. Um, and so we would go to Blockbuster every Friday, I think right after school, and I would limit Andrew to a certain number of movies, probably like five or something. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Can you visualize this, Ariana? And, of course, you know, he, he would go. I don't know if you would go with a physical list or just a list in your head, but you knew which movies you wanted to watch because I remember the guys used to let us go through the, the return bins before oh, they had been shelved because he would look for specific movies. Aww. So, anyway, that's just... That's I, got I don't remember little, that, but I'm not surprised, and I believe you. I got off on a little Andrew tangent. So, Please do. Uh, yes, yeah. as many of those as possible. I want to <laughs> well, I mean, of course, I had seen Pulp Fiction, which came out before Kill Bill. And I, and I enjoyed Pulp Fiction, thought it was a little, little violent. Um, so I was interested in seeing the first Kill Bill. So I'm sure I rented it on DVD, I mean, on VHS, and watched it well after Andrew went to bed one night. And I remember thinking the first one was, I mean, it was good, but it was pretty violent. If you just watch volume one, you know, on its own, it wasn't until like a year later uh, that I would have seen, well, uh, probably a little less, um, the second volume in the theaters. And that's when I fell in love with the movie, because I think the second one is just so beautifully shot. And I love a good visual movie. And then watching them both together, the whole story came together. So that's how I saw Kill Bill. And like Sandy, yeah, I can just watch it over and over and find new things. Yeah. And Ariana, when was your first time seeing? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, fair, fair enough, fair enough. I don't know. It was probably sometime in high school. Friends, you know, showing me fun movies that they like. I'd, all I remember really from the first round I saw it was the yellow jumpsuit and someone equating it to Bruce Lee. Yeah. 
That's why I'm that wearing was... yellow today, in honor oh. of that. Oh, in God. honor of that outfit, that is the exact reason why I'm wearing that. And that's, <laughs> and that's why mom's wearing like the jumpsuit. <laughs> oh, jumpsuit. no. And I've got if red I had... to represent all the gore. There you go. If I had <laughs> had any yellow, I would have worn it. But yeah. But and I'm wearing black to like represent uh, Bill. I guess. There you go. There you yes. go. Sure, sure, why not? <laughs> um, Andrew, were those films released how many months apart? I want to say six months. Uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 released in the winter, two in the summer. Um, now, Mom, you have said yes. this is your favorite film of all time. It is. Why? So how can I put this? The, the beginning of Volume 1, where she wakes up in the hospital bed, well, close to the beginning, where she wakes up in the hospital bed and realizes that she doesn't have her baby anymore. is so, The acting was just, right, amazing. She has this visceral reaction, and which really sets up the rest of the movie for her, you know, seeking revenge on the people that took that from her. And especially being, a, you know, my kids were relatively young. I mean, I, you know, at the time. And so I could relate to how that would feel. And so, and then the end of the movie, I love a happy ending. And so, and, you know, Quentin Tarantino, right? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, love that ending. Some, you know, a lot of the, his, my favorite movies of his are the ones with the great endings. And so, and I mean, I thought, it was a perfect ending to a to a great film. So, and Sandy, this is one of your favorite films. I I do love Kill Bill uh, one and two. It is my one of my favorite films because of the strong women that are represented. And I know that they're brutal, but they are badass, strong women. And I love to see this whole group of them in this film. I love action films. Good Lord, you couldn't have any more action than they have in this. (laughs) So for that, fantastic. It's also quirky. It's a quirky, crazy story that makes no sense but makes perfect sense. And and I like that kind of quirkiness about it, that that it just works. And the ending is perfect. The ending in this this respect was perfect. I love swordplay. I love kung fu films. So there's a ton of fighting. I love how how he uses different genres, like with the anime, and then it's not, and the black and white, and then it's color, and then there's like the the big fight with uh, Oren with the 88s, where it was noisy fighting, but then it stops, and I think it turns to black and white, and then music starts, and it just oh, I love it. There's always mm-hmm. something going on that grabs my eye, my interest. I can't do crossword puzzles if I'm watching this film because I want to see everything. And I think like for all those reasons, I just think it's a fantastic film. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. I agree with you so much. There's the cool part about Quentin and Quentin Tarantino, I think in general, but especially shown in Kill Bill is that he brings all the elements of filmmaking and points them out to keep you intrigued. When you were talking about like the music and the coloring and right down to you know what I was talking about the split screen like the way he visually represents everything he puts so much effort into making all the elements come alive and Kill Bill is such a good representation of a blending of all of those it's wonderful. and they and the detail to character yeah. like when the um 
Texas Ranger comes up to the church and has all the Ray-Bans on his dashboard. And, you know, I mean, it's just perfect, right? I mean, who, who thinks of that detail, but you got so much about the character from, from those little tiny tidbits. Oh, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know nothing about, really, about cinematography, filmmaking. So, I, you know, I really don't know anything much about that. But just seeing the way that he incorporated so many modalities and, and so much to hold my interest and to make me just feel like I was blown away by what was going on. I, I just thought it was, it, it, it's cool. It's just yeah. a cool film. It's cool. Yeah. 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 Should I get, jump into the facts? Yes, sure. please. Yeah. Awesome. After having directed perhaps the most influential film of the 90s, Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino decided to, as he put it, quote, throw them for a loop, unquote, by making a film that is more restrained in its style, 1997's Jackie Brown. Although Jackie Brown was well received by critics, it was not the audience smash hit that Pulp Fiction was. It would be six years until Tarantino's next film, Kill Bill, Volume 1. Why did Tarantino take so long to release his next film? How did his original concept for Kill Bill evolve? And who did Quentin Tarantino originally have in mind when, re when writing the role of Bill? Ariana, Sandy, Mom, let's answer those questions and more. <laughs> I know some of these answers. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, I, I, think, I think you know the answers because you've been around me. <laughs> or just, you know just, the just answers or the you know the answers because you've been around me oh. <laughs> they were the original lovers of kill bill fair enough you know what fair enough i i stand corrected andrew how so you never answered the question how old do you remember how old you were when we let you see it or i think how? i was i was 13 i think and mm -hmm. do you know who you saw it with oh you definitely First, oh, vol I, first volume. Um, I think what happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think what happened was that uh, you said, oh, you get to skip to volume two. And I said, no, I want to see the whole thing. Oh. Because you, cause you weren't a huge fan of the first volume when you first saw it. But then I think, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was my love for both films that made you love volume one even more. Am I right in that? I, or I can edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it could have. I think I probably just wanted you to love the film. Yeah. And and from my personal experience about seeing Volume One first, I thought maybe if you saw Volume Two first, you'd be more interested in seeing Volume One. Gosh. I didn't. I didn't real. I didn't probably didn't think you had the patience at that time to sit through the whole thing, and and wait for the journey to solidify. So, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at that age, I was watching like Schindler's List. So I think I had the patience. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a good training film for how to sit through a long story. <laughs> a long, grueling story. Yeah. 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 No, but, uh, but also, um, I, we were talking, Ariana and I and the other guests were talking about this on, on another, the Pulp Fiction episode of the podcast. What's weird, and that Garrett, Garrett my, our friend, noted this, um, mm -hmm. I told them that uh, you didn't want me to see Pulp Fiction uh, before I was like 15 or 14. 
And my and but you were fine with me seeing Kill Bill. And Garrett was like, "What's up with that?" And and I she and she was like, and I know you were saying like, "Oh, this is horrible basement scene," right? In Pulp Fiction. And and then I saw it and I was like, "Oh yeah, I've seen worse stuff than this on the internet." <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. I you know, being a non-native to technology, right? Raising two kids that were natives to the very first tech at home technology it was an interesting ride definitely definitely yeah yeah for everybody involved right for everybody i'm especially interested in and why he selected david carradine because i am a huge fan of david carradine's old kung fu show oh yeah well huge fan of that spoiler alert for this podcast that's the main reason why (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and it's funny because I actually, when I, I see such similarity between the two characters mm-hmm. in their demeanor and their communication style, even though their, you know, their behavior was at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh-huh. And I just, I just thought, like, I'm always drawn to that. I love, and of course he's a white guy who was playing a Chinese, he's Irish, I think. And yeah. he was playing a Kung Fu you know, Buddhist monk, and I, you know, anyway, that's a whole nother story, but I, do, but I love him. I think he's great. Ariana, just, just to let you know, uh, Kung Fu was a 70s TV show where David Carradine, who's a white guy, played, uh, played a white guy, but he was always mistaken for, like, a Chinese guy. Am I getting this right, Mom and Sandy? Well, he was actually a Shaolin monk in the show, and yeah. you were, it, you, it was understood that he was from somewhere, China, Tibet, somewhere like that. Right. So he kind of was played off as being not white, but right. Asian. Right. Yeah. That's what he I was. Remember. He was Irish. The germ for Kill Bill began with the character of the bride, as played by Uma Thurman. Uh, Quentin Tarantino had cast the actor as Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction. When, well on that film set, they began discussing the idea of her playing an assassin. This banter between director and actor is how the entire idea got started and why there is an unusual credit at the end of Kill Bill. The credit in question proclaims, based on the character of the bride created by Q and you. So that's oh. why that credit's in there. Oh my God, are you for real? Yeah. You know, I wrote that down. Yeah. I was wondering who the U was. Makes total sense. Okay. Uma Thurman, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Because I thought it came from something else. I didn't know that it was right. totally original. Oh, yeah. Because of that credit. <laughs> Collaboration is key. Oh, that's fun. Cool. Although Tarantino was writing Kill Bill by late 1994, it was not going to be his next project following Jackie Brown. Instead, he was planning to create Inglorious Bastards. So he was planning to create Inglorious Bastards, but Tarantino claims that he had the opposite of writer's block while crafting the screenplay. He couldn't stop writing, and his ideas were getting out of hand. One idea that Tarantino had for the original version was for the character of Shoshana Dreyfus in Inglorious Bastards. Dreyfus was to be a sniper on the rooftops of Nazi-occupied France and pick off the Nazis. Tarantino lifted this idea and incorporated it into Kill Bill. You know, with like, with like Oranichi, her earlier. Right. Yeah, yeah, and the red outfit yeah. on the, yeah. Yeah. To tame himself, 
Tarantino turned back to writing Kill Bill, which ironically became so lengthy that it ended up being released as two films. Um, so now we're going to dive into two performances in particular, two facts about two performances. What are your favorite performances in these films, guys? We got, we got, to, we got to talk about this. The acting in this films on these films are incredible. I could go first. Okay, go first. Uh, I gotta say, Bill. Hmm. I mean, I mean, Bill. If not, if for the Superman speech alone. Oh. Uh, come on, that's a great speech. You know. It's a fabulous speech. If I had, yeah, if I had to pick a favorite. Uh. I mean, in terms of acting, it'd be Bill. Uh, in terms of like, you know raw emotion and, and but i mean look i could i could say that about anybody in this film but uh uma thurman kicks ass yeah and lucy lou lucy yeah. lou yeah oh my god i know how do you pick because <laughs> even i i think l was amazing oh amazing so i you know oh. i could maybe pick her and say you know she she just she, she was really, really great. Right. But of course, what? Yeah. What about Uma? What about Lucy? Like, they were also good. But, but Al was Al got me. She got me good. Yeah. She. I thought she was great. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes, of course, is her whistling down the the rehab. Right. Yeah, oh. I love that. Yeah. She is always so so methodically cold. Right. Yeah. I just loved I love that. I love yeah. when she took out her notepad to tell right a bud, you know, what he was dying from and how it was gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was cool. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Uh, just just to let you know, uh, the whistling was actually taken from a horror film made in the uh I, I believe the seventies or the eighties called Twisted Nerve. And oh. it was it was uh the uh, whistling was actually composed by Bernard Herrmann, who did many Hitchcock films. Mm. Oh, cool. The composer wow. for many Hitchcock films. Very cool. See, so, little tidbits like that are cool, because they let you know that, you know, he, he gets inspired just like any other director, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Cop kind of copies stuff that he finds cool and places it in parts that he thinks it's useful. And it was a lot of fun. Like you said, that was a favorite beginning scene for me, too. Yeah. Ariana. Oh, I mean... Uh, I, I let you guys lead me a little bit. When you said Bill, I was like, yeah, he was phenomenal. He's a perfect, <laughs> lovable villain. And then you said Elle, and I'm like, yeah, every time she's on screen, I'm obsessed with how she talks and the way that she does things. And then um, I, I like Bud, too. I thought he was a weirdly likable character somehow. He's so simple, but, you know, the idea that he's Bill's brother was, like, really fascinating to me. Um, and, but, I mean, Uma Thurman just crushes it every time she has the opportunity to. You know, I was actually re-watching, uh, like, like, a couple years ago, I was re-watching a scene of the scene of Bud where he, he oh. one-ups uh, Uma, where he one-ups uh, the bride, where he, like, shoots her. And mm -hmm. yeah. um, A YouTube comment actually said, you know, the reason that he almost succeeded in in the bride was because he actually respected her like he, he was like the one character who knew oh she's a danger and i i probably can't defeat her and that's how he was able to almost get her mm -hmm. yeah and so that that makes this character interesting i think i think so too within the mythology of i agree universe. yeah there are many exceptional actors in this film two such actors are michael parks and gordon Liu. now why do i single out these two because they both play different roles in each volume. 
Parks was cast in Volume 1 to reprise his Texas Ranger character, Earl McGraw. He played this character previously in From Dust Till Dawn, a film which starred and was written by Tarantino. Parks was also cast to play the pimp, Esteban, in Volume 2. Gordon Liu was cast to play the leader of the Crazy 88s in Volume 1 and the bride's teacher, Pai Mei, in Volume 2. So, you know, they're both the same. Oh, Got- shoot. Yeah. I did not know that. Me yeah. neither. <laughs> Wait, Pai Mei was the same person as same actor. the 88, the same actor as the 88 leader? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Get her out of here. That is cool. That is really I, cool. You know what? I like that he utilized these actors in more than one role. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. They're really tell, talented. Tell me again who the actor who plays Esteban and, in Volume 2, who does he play in Volume 1? Uh, Michael Parks plays a Texas Ranger Earl McGraw. The, the one with the, the Ray-Bans. The, the sunglasses. Yeah. What? I would yeah. never yeah. have guessed that. Me I would neither. Never... If you told me while I was literally watching the film that those are the same people, I would have said, you're crazy. Yeah. yeah. And I, I loved Esteban. I think that right? he was cool. Yeah. He was an interesting uh, old man. Yeah. Yeah. That's so oh, true. my gosh. Esteban was a great character, and the actor that portrayed him did a fantastic job. Speaking of the Crazy 88s, in Volume 1, there is a battle sequence between that gang and the bride in a Tokyo restaurant. Now, this is a question for Sandy. Um, Uma Thurman and her stunt double must have gone through some rigorous training for that scene. You know, they're flying all over the place and, uh, and you know, they're chopping up guys left and right. What are your comments on that as a former physical trainer, bodybuilder? Like, what must have been involved for something that's so physical? There, I mean, I don't know the extent to which, you know, each of the the actors and the and the body doubles did like how much they did how much time was in between of course we're looking at this film in one continuous non-stop fight that let's be honest nobody could right. have then gone outside and killed oren right like that's not but but we it's believable in the film so if you break it down i don't know how much time was in between rest periods or in between it is physically demanding and I'll just give the most simplest example. In bodybuilding, when you get on stage and you pose and you tighten every muscle and you stand there for 20 seconds while the judges look at you, it's exhausting to hold a pose for 20, 30, 40 seconds. So I thought of that about how incredibly difficult this must have been for them, the, just the, the movements. It's really different, though, than you know, than than true strength, I think. But the I think it has more to do with with uh, your stamina for for this kind of film. So, like, if you were a runner, because I, I'm going to say another thing: none of these women, in particular, maybe Elle a little bit, none of them were muscular. Uma was very thin, and she had badass strength which I would, under normal circumstances, I find it ridiculous. Example in point, Wonder Woman. Did you guys see that film? I did, yeah. yeah. I refused to see it uh, (laughs) because I felt like Wonder Woman, wasn't she supposed to be an Amazon? And they had this little tiny girl the size of my pinky finger playing her, 
And I was so offended by that. <laughs> that I boycotted the film because she wasn't muscular. But I don't feel that way at all for Kill Bill. But they, they probably worked their butts off to, to get those all of that, all of them to get those scenes done. That huge fight scene required tons of stamina and air. I, I read online it took two months. It was, That's isn't right. that right? Yeah. To do that fight scene, yeah. So. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see why when you when you think when you just see it in one fell swoop, it's nonstop action. There's no way that a person can be doing that. And the sequence of events and, and movements are so choreographed and meticulous. I'm sure there was a lot of and Andrew, you probably know a thousand times more than I do, but just a lot of redos, right? With with that and cut and let's do it again kind of a thing. That's the extent of my knowledge of, of how to make a film. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Uh, that, that really gives us a good insight into like what the physical demands must have been. Uh, uh, Andrew, does Quentin Tarantino, does uh, he do a lot of takes or? I was just going to get to that. Okay. Um, so, but, but, uh, it, but before that, if I could just comment on uh, I, I'm going to try to explain this, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to cut it out. Um, so the way they phys so the way in America, in Hollywood, you film a fight scene is that you have multiple cameras filming from different angles, and you film, film the fight scene as much as you can, and then the editing, you cut it up and, in order to make it work. Quentin Tarantino is so exacting, and that, the reason it took like two months was because he shot with like max two cameras, usually one. And because so we could control every single shot. So that and so that that's why it took like two months. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Well, it works because yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The results are on screen. Definitely tell it was done with pre precision. Yes. Yeah. So to get back to mom's point about takes, at one point, a member of the Crazy 88s clutches out her throat where blood sprays out, and you know when, when the Uma slices her throat. Mm -hmm. uh, the effect that effect of blood spraying was created by the actor holding a Chinese condom, meaning a weak condom, uh, in her hand, which was filled with fake blood, and then squeezing it as she clutches her throat. So the camera was like behind her. She like clutches her throat after Uma slices, blood sprays out. However. The blood did not spray in a way that satisfied Tarantino. It didn't, it didn't spray up so the camera could see it. So Tarantino did approximately 34 takes until the blood sprayed out of the condom correctly. He, oh claims that, he claims that this is the most number of takes that he has done for any scene in his career. Wow. So. 30, That's 30 a fact. max. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Meanwhile, as we discussed, uh, Ariana, before yeah. on, a pre on uh, the episode on Heat, you know, Michael Mann does 30 takes, 20, 30 takes per scene for, like, a movie like Heat. And, you know, Kubrick has, like, the like some record uh, for, like, over 100 takes for one shot, you know. But are they doing theirs on film, like Quentin Tarantino? Or? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Michael Mann did Heat on film. Kubrick Charles, because he died before digital became a thing. Wow, that's a lot of film. Say that again. Yeah. Another fact about that sequence is that the transition to black and white was not a pre-planned stylistic choice. Hmm. Uh, Tar Tarantino added the black and white effect in post-production in order to reduce the gory elements, 
seen on screen because the ratings uh, board of America would not give the film an R rating otherwise. I'm glad they did it though because I thought yeah. it was really cool. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it ended up great on the screen. So you're right. Um, That's fascinating. Don't, I totally thought it was purposeful. <laughs> and well, me too. It, it I mean, was, I'm sure he did it like the best way he could to accommodate as well as like pair it with the filmmaking. Exactly. It's kind of like with Martin Scorsese at the end of Taxi Driver, you know, he had to change the color of that sequence in order to avoid getting an X rating at the time. Um, I've liked the climactic shootout sequence, so it's kind of like yeah. that. Mom. Yes, honey. Your favorite shot in Kill Bill Volume 1 is the garden fight sequence. Could you talk about that? I mean, because it's just gorgeous, right? Everything about it, the contrast between uh, Uma yellow you know bloodstained yellow with um oren's uh you know white kimono stepping into the snow with her white socks um it's the um oren you know uh ridiculing uma when she's on the ground and then later apologizing i mean everything i just it was the snow, I, I can, everything about it I thought was perfect. Sometimes every once in a while you'll read a book and you're like, you get to the end and you're like, I wouldn't change a single word. And that's how I feel about that scene. I can't think of anything I would have wanted to, it to go differently. So right. anyway. I loved the part when they're fighting and all, like it seems unexpected like because they do a lot of close-ups with them talking in the first part. And then all of a sudden it drops back and they chase each other around uh -huh. like a thing and come through the overhang. Right. I saw that and I'm like, oh, this is, it's just shot so well. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Just beautiful. I agree. I agree with Sarah and Ariana. That is a perfect scene. And I loved, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's. And the color palette, you know, you got the blue in the sky, you got the white on the ground, you got the yellow and the white of Uma Thurman and uh, Oren Ishii, respectively. You know, it's... Yeah. it's oh. Yeah. Question, like, would you say the way they talk to each other, like when they do the silly rabbit, drinks are for kids, little connection? Because these are people that probably worked together under Bill before Uma left. So this whole, like, exchange they had, because you could tell her and Elle never liked each other. But maybe her and Oren were kind of friends. Like, maybe they had a mutual respect for each other. So when she goes after her, I kind of sensed that maybe that they were, like, kind of friendly before, you know, she you know she came and murdered her wedding party. But did you guys get that sense, too, that they were maybe, uh, like, had a mutual respect friendship before all this went down? You know, I, I got that uh, sense... And then I also got the sense that maybe Oren had risen to a level where she was no longer humble. And that's where the mocking came from. And it wasn't until right before she died that she came back into her true self. Yeah. I don't know. But I mean, I could just be reading all that in. <laughs> anyway. No, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that, make, that does make sense. Because yeah. her origin story is just... Yeah, I feel though that... I, I feel that all of the assassins respected each other before the murder at the at the chapel so i feel like they all had the level of respect for each other they were all doing the same thing yeah, yeah. though i don't know you think l respected anyone 
Well, Elle know. did say at the end when she was talking to Bud that the greatest warrior she probably ever known oh. met her end by him. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, if I can throw my two cents in there and expand, um, I, I I feel like Elle had t- kind of a relationship. If I'm reading a lot into the backstory, um, I feel like Elle must have, have had a relationship with uh, Uma uh, that she may have thought that she was the greatest warrior that she'd ever met, but I don't think she'd ever admit it to her face. Yeah. That's how I feel. I'm so. with you there. So back to the uh, Japanese garden scene. Uh, Tarantino had commented about his original concept for that fight. Uh, Tarantino had wished in his head, like, like he had wished in concept, that the two adversaries could grow to the size of giants and brawl throughout the streets of Tokyo. However, Tarantino realized that even in the fantastical universe that he had created, that was going too far. Yeah, you yeah. don't want people to watch the film and be like, oh, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like right, got- because mm-hmm. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. Because when when she is buried alive and comes, you know, and and works her way, crawls out, you you have to suspend reality there, into this like you say, fantastical universe, to accept that. And and I sometimes struggle with things like that, but I did not with this film. But if he had done other too much over the top things, I probably would not have liked it as well. Totally agree. Now let's move on to the music. Yeah, do, do we want to talk? Do we would just want to talk? Have a conversation about that first? Um. So, so uh, what's your what are your favorite moments throughout the two films? Musical moments. There's one for me, but I want to hear your guys's. I don't know if they're favorite. They're just ones I remember. That Johnny Cash is playing in Bud's trailer when she's coming. Yeah. I love that. Um, and of course the five, six, seven, eights in the, in the Tokyo bar scene is just so classic. I, anyway, what's yours, Andrew? Uh, mine is the, uh, uh, death of bill. That's musical score. That's musical song is called the demise of Barbara and the return of Joe. So, and that's from a film of the seventies. Ariana, what's your favorite? Ooh. I mean, I, 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 it's hard to pick one out, um, especially because I'm not super focused on the music, even though I felt it the whole time. Sure. But I, I, I just liked the introduction to Anytime She's About to Kill Somebody, the, the theme, the main theme. Yeah. Because it just instantly puts you in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. it, uh, I don't know, it just like intensifies it in a fun way. Yeah. Which I liked. Sandy. Yeah, I have to agree uh, about the five, six, seven, eight. The band that was playing it—that that just is just hammered in my mind, and it, it was just so so interesting that uh, what what they were doing and what was going on and what we're listening to and what we're seeing happening around the edges of that—I loved it. Fantastic. There are many unforgettable musical moments in Kill Bill, although most of the music is from already released albums and other movies. There's a, there is actually original music that was composed. Like, uh, for example, the first volume's original music was composed by rapper The RZA. A good example of the music that was composed by The RZA was uh, when Lucy, when, uh, Lucy Liu was walking down the hallway, like uh, right when they entered the restaurant. That was original. The second volume's original music was composed by director Robert Rodriguez. 
Rodriguez is most well known as the director from Dust Till Dawn and the Spy Kids movies. Uh, because oh. Rodriguez and Tarantino are very close friends, Tarantino got away with paying him $1 for composing the original score for Volume 2. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's a good deal. Speaking, uh, speaking of Volume 2, it's time to address the elephant in the room. Uh, before filming one sequence in which the bride down, drives down a forest road in Mexico, Uma Thurman felt unsafe driving down that road. So she asked Tarantino if a stunt driver could do so instead. Tarantino refused. The car crashed and Thurman was taken to the hospital. She sustained a concussion and damaged her knees. Thurman wanted to go public with this abuse of power. However, the company that was producing Kill Bill, Miramax, would not release the inf- footage of that car crash until Thurman's, Thurman signed a document, quote, releasing them of any consequences of Thurman's future pain and suffering. End quote. What? Yeah. By 2018, over 100 women had claimed to have been sexually harassed or assaulted by Miramax co-founder Harvey Weinstein. Thurman was among those women. After she went to the police that year, uh, Miramax released the footage and Thurman was able to go public, revealing the abuse of power. Now, having learned that information, how, how do you guys feel about the films? She didn't want the risk. She was persuaded to take the risk. And then she took the risk. It's on her doesn't change how I feel about it. I mean, I'm sad it happened. You know, I'm sad it happened. Uh, but uh, I I kind of agree, right? I mean, she, she, they were so deep into the filming that I think she would have had a good position to say, sorry, you know, we're at an impasse and I don't feel comfortable doing it and I'm not going to do it. So, I mean, if she had pushed him to the wall on it, I think... You know, it's not like she didn't have power. She had already, right, she'd already done, this was volume two, right? She had already done volume one, filmed probably a significant portion of volume two. So, I mean, what was he going to do? Recast her? I don't think so, yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, she was a younger woman and there were, you know, and they were older men and she felt obligated. Um, So, I mean, I feel for her in that respect. And because it's a car crash, I mean, there's only so much control anybody can have in that kind of scenario. I mean, if she wasn't comfortable, that's one thing, but it's like, how much control do you really have over, you know, something going wrong while you're in a vehicle? I don't think you can really point the finger at somebody. So, like, to say, oh, I want to go public with, I didn't feel comfortable with this, and I ended up getting in a car crash doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Uh, But, I mean... I don't know. I don't. I don't like the contractual thing. Yeah, I mean that no, part of no. it was, I think, a pretty unethical of them. Yeah. To keep her from going forward with the information, just something that's true to protect themselves from liability. I mean, I understand wanting to protect yourself, but over something like that seems unreasonable. Yeah. And they they have been friends since then, right? Didn't they even date Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman after her divorce? I don't. You know, I actually. I don't think I don't think that's officially been confirmed. Oh, okay. I don't think, but it's okay. been a, it's been allegedly, you know, oh, okay. one of those things. Although yeah. I should look that up and double check. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know them, so I have no idea. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I had promised near the beginning of this episode to reveal who Tarantino had originally wanted for Bill. Warren Beatty. 
the original concept for Bill was that this character would be like a pimp because because you know he he has a brother and everybody else is in the group the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad is uh, women. However, Beatty turned down the role and Tarantino reworked the character to be more suitable suitable for David Carradine, and the rest is history. Hmm. So, by the way, uh, Ariana Warren Beatty was like in Bonnie and Clyde. If you've heard of that movie, he played Clyde. Oh. Yeah. Cool. I've, so. seen, I've watched that movie once in film class. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. So you know who he is. I do. Okay, I, good. I didn't know his name right away, but Bonnie and Clyde, I know that one. Cool. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, I like David Carrington, I think, better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was perfect for that role, so. Oh, yes. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. And well, when you think about the... Sorry, Andrew. Um, no, but when you think about how... Quentin Tarantino wrote it for him a little bit. You you just said he readjusted the role to fit David better. Very uh, well communicated, I'd say. Yeah. On their end. Yeah. Yeah. Warren Beatty and Pi May. I just I can't see that interaction. But I don't know. right. Yeah. Um. You know, I. I'm kind, I'm a little bit of a Warren Beatty fan, you know, and so I. You, you know, what's interesting is that. Uh, there's an alternate universe in which... Okay, so The Godfather, originally the studio wanted uh, Ryan O'Neill to play Al Pacino's character. Um, and, and, you know, Francis Ford Coppola even said, you, you know, Ryan O'Neill's a good actor, and I, you know, but Al Pacino, come on. Uh, and so there's an alternate universe in which stuff like that happens. So now just to wrap up this episode, Kill Bill was a critical and commercial success upon its release. Ever since 2004, Tarantino had discuss, has discussed the possibility of making sequels and spin-offs to Kill Bill. Ideas that the filmmaker has thrown out to the public range from a volume 3 to an anime origin story for Bill. As of this recording, these projects have yet to come to fruition. Closing thoughts, everybody. Oh, I, I'm so up for number 3 with Sophie and, and is it Nikki? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. Coming back to seek revenge. Yeah, because because one of Tarantino's concepts was that uh, Nikki, the uh, girl, the girl at the uh, beginning of Volume One, whose whose mom is killed by Thurman, mm-hmm. uh, his concept is that uh, you know Sophie or Elle would train uh, this young woman and to seek revenge on this now young woman to seek revenge on Uma Thurman. Oh, that's right, because we don't know if Elle's really dead. Yeah. 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 She's, so I found cool. that interesting that she's the only one that she left alive. I mean, Sophie, too, but Sophie wasn't really there doing any of the murdering. She was just right. kind of making phone calls. But Elle was in there yeah. with them. Yeah. Right. And Uma Thurman did say to the little girl after she killed her mom, you know, if you feel a certain way later in life, you can come find me. So it kind of yeah. set the stage for that spinoff. However... I had never thought of this, Andrew, until you said origin story of Bill. I'd be down for that. Mm. Yeah. I would love to see a film about Bill. <laughs> He's the man. Although it's hard to imagine David not having David Carradine. Right. How, yeah. how, exactly. They'd have yeah. to find the perfect actor for him because it'd be a young yeah. version of him anyways. Yeah. So I would love to True. see like how he found Pai Mei and what made him a murderous bastard. Yeah. <laughs> That would be so cool. <laughs> All right. Do you have any do you have any uh updates on if and when that might happen, Andrew or? Uh no. Uh, Sorry. 
There is another part of me that is okay with the wandering, though. Because the movies are so perfect. Yeah. I'm always a little scared that if something else gets added to the mix, it either gets dropped off to the side or is too much compared. And it sometimes it's better just to leave something perfect by itself. So I'm okay fascinating about those stories. I think I can make peace if I don't ever see those come to light. Yeah. I like what you just said, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, un- unless there are any more closing thoughts. Uh, let me flip through my notes real fast. Uh, see if I had any questions for you. Hold on. Sure. Oh, boy. I will just make a comment. Out of all of the violence in the film, I just, this cracked me up, but out of all the, the violence of the film, the one scene that I had to like kind of look away every time it comes on is when she steps on Elle's eyeball. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, so good. I looked away. Everything. Why is it? That's the one thing that I'm squeamish about. It goes in between her toes yeah. and everything. It was awesome. Yeah, it was pretty bad. So, so one question I had was Paula Schultz, the grave, uh, is she related to Christoph Falk's character in... Uh, Django Unchained. Ooh, I have no That's idea. I had come across that on the internet, and now I can't stop thinking about it. So. I mean, I wouldn't be... Uh, I have no official answer for that. I would not be surprised. Yeah. Right? Who are you talking about? Paula Schultz, the grave that Uma is buried alive in. Or the oh! bride. I should guess we should say the bride. Yeah, I, it, it was. It's the same last name as... And I, I mispronounce his name. Is it Christoph Waltz? Is that uh, how oh, you say oh, it? oh, you mean the actor? Right. Yeah, Christoph you, Waltz, yeah. Yeah, his character in Django Unchained is named like King Schultz. Yeah. So Dr. same King last Schultz. name. And so there's speculation online that the grave may be his daughter or somehow <laughs> related to him. Oh. Is oh. Quentin known for doing stuff like that? Like linking random little points in his movies and characters? Oh, yeah. The Bride. Yeah, go ahead. You totally made me remember that fact. Um, according to, uh, So uh, Uma Thurman's stunt double in, in both films plays uh, a character who, like, wears a bandana in Django Unchained, and apparently they're, like, connected family-wise. Mm-hmm. And she's the old, Like, when Django uh, shoots up the... Uh, that gang members, I want to say Shaq, when they're, when they're in the Shaq, she's the only one who escapes. Right. Her, and so she could go off and have kids or something. Ariana would have to rewatch Jango yeah. and Shane it's to a ver- that. And it's a very brief moment, so I, I, I barely remember it, you know. And doesn't this, doesn't this stunt double make an appearance in... Um, Hateful Eight. Yeah, Hateful Eight. That's right. What? Yeah. Yeah. See, I love filmmakers that kind of keep yeah. their crew around them for all the years of their career. Yeah. Yeah. Quinn Tarantino and Adam Sandler are the only ones I know of, but there's <laughs> got to be more. <laughs> oh yeah. So then we have to mention Samuel L. was Rufus. Oh the, my gosh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Love that. I just imagine know. that conversation. Like, hey, you want to come by for a couple of days and do this real quick? Sure. <laughs> yeah. And he's so iconic in every film that yeah, yeah. everything he's in. He's lovable yeah. to watch. I, I yeah. gotta love him. Uh, Sandy. Yes. Do you have anything to promote? Oh, well, local here in Las Cruces, but not necessarily local. If you're online, you could take classes at Dona Ana Community College and take my speech class. 
or oh. anyone else that's offering a class and NMSU as well. Thank you. And you're a wonderful speaker, so I would definitely recommend that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. This was great fun. I appreciate being included. Uh, thank you for stopping by. Mom, do you have anything to promote? Well, not so much a promote, just a, um, and you and I have talked about this, yeah. how, especially during the pandemic, you know, everyone's mental health has taken kind of a hit. And uh, we're very involved with, uh, it's called DBSA San Francisco. It's Dep the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance in San Francisco. And they offer free online zoom in support groups whether you yourself are on a journey with your own mental health or whether you're a friend or family member who is supporting someone who has a mental health issue so um and dbsa is actually a national uh group so um you can either go to dbsa san francisco or dbsa um the national organization and find free support from the time I was 17, uh, DBSA certainly helped me uh, with my mental health, like finding support and finding people like me. And so, frankly, not to get too morbid, but uh, I, I feel as though that uh, I, I, I would not be nearly as happy without them um, if, if I would be here at all. And so um, DBSA does fantastic work. And so I, I encourage anybody who uh, is listening uh, would like help or both uh, to uh, encourage to I would encourage them to uh, go to DBSA um, online for support. Uh, listeners, if you have any comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot us an email at independentcareerstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I researched, wrote, and edited this episode. My name is Andrew Gentile. This has been an Independent Career Studios production.